Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to John 15. We'll look at verses 12 through 17 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. <clears throat> Jesus, this may be an understatement. He said a lot of uh, really interesting stuff, a lot of very important things, a lot of unique things that nobody had ever said before. Some of those things <clears throat> that he said have been adopted into our culture, uh, quite apart from how he intended, really, quite apart from uh, relationship to him, divorced from the original context of his teaching. For example, everybody knows the golden rule, and everybody thinks it's a good rule for life, whether or not they would attribute it to Jesus, understand that Jesus is the one who said it, or um, connect it to his life, understand it in context of what he meant by it. Another example is from our passage this morning that we're going to read in just a minute. Uh, It's in verse 13 where he says, familiar words to us now, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Um, Familiar words. We've twisted those words. We've divorced them for original context. Uh, The Internet will show you how easily his words have been distorted. Some use similar, similar language, at least, uh, at the beginning, right, the phrase, uh, but then veer, veer way off course. There's no greater love than the love of cooking. One always cooks for another, Jacques Pepin says. <laughs> There's no greater love than a mother's love. There's no greater love than a, a spousal love, romantic love. Right? Or <clears throat> a lot of people quote the verse more precisely, but then apply it to very strange things. You know, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends that you see on a plaque in memory of those who have donated their bodies for the advancement of science, uh, mankind, and health sciences. Organ donors. Greater love has no one than organ donors. Or, um, or most commonly, actually, what you see, if you look up this verse on Google Images, you will see it as a caption for emotional pictures of soldiers who made the ultimate sacrifice for their country. You know, the guy looking off wistfully into the sunset with his uniform on. Um, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends and country. The concept of sacrifice, it's a beautiful concept, and it gets a lot of traction in our culture, even if it's disconnected from Jesus and and from his teachings. Uh, It gets a lot of traction in our stories, in our entertainment. What's the little girl's favorite movie? Frozen? True love looks like sister sacrificing herself for another sister. It's beautiful. It brings you to tears, right? It's not what you expected from a Disney movie, probably. But there's, there's beauty in sacrifice generally. But we really should be careful to keep this connected to what Jesus is actually saying. If you're going to understand it, uh, if it's going to change your life, you need to keep this connected to our relationship to Jesus when he says things like this, or else it will lose its true meaning might bring a tear to your eye, but it's not going to change the world. It's not going to change your life. So um, that's what we're talking about this morning. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Let's talk about that. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need your help to keep our attention on your word, uh, even for the brief moment that we're here to hear it and to consider it. We have a lot of distractions in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. Um, These things should be 
dealt with according to your word. We should know your word. We should store it up in our hearts. We should, um, we should understand it and pray to you in light of your word. It needs to take root in us, but that's a work that only you can do by your spirit. So we pray that you'd help us to understand it, to embrace your word, and to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So we're in the middle of Jesus' farewell discourse, or his upper room discourse, uh, chapters 13 through 17 of John's gospel. It's, I think it's the longest stretch um, of Jesus' teaching that's recorded in the gospels. Uh, it's, it's all one conversation, and I say this a lot. I think it's sort of unfortunate that the chapter uh, breaks, chapter and verse divisions are artificial, right? These, these weren't originally written with... You know, verse chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, uh, covering our section. Um, it's, it's too bad they're artificial because they distract us from the fact that this is one conversation. All of this ties together. Jesus is, is talking about uh, these familiar themes over and over again. He's spoken a lot about his commandments. He's talked a lot about the spirit and the fruit that we're to bear. He's said over and over and over again, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And he's talking about love. He's talking about love a lot. And he said in uh, chapter 13, toward the beginning of um, this discourse, he said, love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So familiar themes from there coming up again in our passage this morning. Love, love is at the heart of what Jesus is saying. It's the heart of his discourse and not just any generic love, but love as Jesus defines it, which is very specific. It's very specific. The world has plenty of ideas about love. The world uses that, that word a lot, right, uh, with its own ideas, <clears throat> its own conception about it. Often the idea of love starts with self, love of self. And often uh, love means you're required to um, indiscriminately show uh, affection and affirmation to anybody and everybody and approve of their ideas just because it's their ideas and you love them. Um, but over against the world's definitions of love, whatever those may be, Jesus has a precise definition of love that originates with the source of all things. This love comes from God. He's the God who is love. And so this is divine love. It's love as revealed in Jesus' own life. It's love that can only be seen, Jesus says, in our lives. We can only love this way if the Spirit is at work in us, if it's a fruit of the Spirit, if God is alive in us, living in us and through us, that's the only way we can see this kind of love in our lives. You can't have this kind of love. You can't love this way apart from a relationship with Jesus. That's the particular nature of the, the love that he's talking about. That is to say, you can't love like Jesus loves unless you're connected to him, unless you're abiding in him. That's language that we saw a lot last week, 
abiding in relationship with Jesus unless you're first a believing recipient of this love, a recipient of God's own love to you in Christ, and then living with his spirit, cultivating Christ's own character and Christ's own life in you. He says in verses 12 and 13, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And this is what he means by that. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So Jesus is saying that the essence of his love to us, the essence of of the love that we're to extend each other in the church, that's what he's talking about, the greatest love, the truest love, divine love, is laying down your life for your friends. And to hear Jesus say that to people like us, to his disciples, that should cause our jaws to hit the floor because he just called us friends. He just called us friends. That's ridiculous. Don't overlook how how stunning this is. If you're not shocked by him saying friend to you, then you will not understand the significance of the love that he's talking about. Friend, uh, you know, just the basic word there in Greek is philos. It's related to the verb uh, to love, actually, to love. So to love someone or to, for someone to be a loved one, that's a friend. Uh, it's greater intimacy than we usually mean today by the word friend. We have a lot of, you know, 600-plus friends on Facebook, right? You're, are you loving them? Is that a loved one to you? Right? There's, there's an idea of intimacy Any intimacy at all coming from Jesus should be surprising to us, considering who Jesus is, considering who Jesus is talking to when he's saying, you're my friends. Jesus, he's God, and he's calling sinners his friends. Jesus is God, and he's calling anti-God people his friends. Sinners are people, not just bad people, a few foibles and quirks, make mistakes. Sinners are people who have chosen enmity with God rather than friendship. Sinners align themselves with the devil in opposition to God. Sinners know very well how to treat God. Ignore him whenever possible, deny him, overthrow him, and if he happened to come in the flesh, murder him and get him out of the picture. Crucify him. That's, that's our relationship to God. That's from our end. That's what we've chosen. And you can see that on display in the lives of pretty much everybody in the Bible, everybody except for Jesus. Personal offenses against God are aggravated and multiplied. It's a world full of people who are anti-God. And that's the main thing that's wrong with us all. No exceptions. That is why we're sinners. That's that's what the word means. So if you take two people... Let's just call them persons A and B. You take two people, and person A is always and only hostile to person B. Always and only set against them. In both the inward being and the outward actions, you'd be surprised to hear person B describe person A as friend. You would be surprised to hear them call that person a loved one. So when someone abandons you, when someone stabs you in the back, figuratively or even literally, 
wishes you were dead. Do you call them friend? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing that should be so startling to us. He has befriended those who stood against him in every way. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's not just nice to bad people. That's not what that means. He draws close to and loves and gives his life for those whose fundamental nature is to oppose him however possible. Sinners make it personal against God. Crucify him. We make it personal against God, and God keeps it personal, and he calls us friend. That is what always happens. Every time someone comes into a relationship with God, through faith in Jesus Christ, God is calling someone who is anti-God friend. He's calling a sinner friend every time. That is what happens with the whole church, each particular congregation in our life together, daily, constantly, God is calling sinners friends. That's why we're even a church. It would almost make sense, humanly speaking, if Jesus were to lay down his life for friends as we understand the concept, right? People who were a lot like him, who shared his basic interests and goals, have so much in common, they always have a great time together when they hang out, they just can't get enough of each other. Almost would make sense if Jesus were laying down his life for people like that, but there was no one like that. There's no one like that. He isn't drawing his friends from a pool of people who are just like him. He didn't sacrifice himself for people who had been good friends to him. He called us friends. Even though we weren't that, and even though that was the last thing we deserved to be called by him, he has befriended sinners. We're sinners ourselves, and we don't even befriend sinners. The minute someone talks about me behind my back, the minute someone demonstrates a lack of care for me, the minute someone just becomes irritating, let alone actively pursuing my downfall, um, they get unfriended. Right? Why should I subject myself to further treatment like that? They're not being friendly to me. Well, then we just won't be friends. I'm not going to call that person my friend anymore. Withdraw. Withhold. Retaliate ruin their lives, or live a life of bitterness toward them. But not friendship. If God acted the same way toward sinners, toward you and me, he wouldn't have sent his son into the world, and there would, then would, where would we be, right? If, if God withheld love, if he withdrew from people who hurt him, he wouldn't be in our lives, we wouldn't have salvation, we wouldn't know Jesus. But in fact, God did send his son, and Jesus has called us friends, and he did lay down his life for us so that we might live with God forever, and he will never unfriend us. He'll never retract his love from us. And now, now the shape of this love, it determines the shape of our friendship. Our friendship with God, our friendship with each other, it determines the shape of our lives. This kind of love, Jesus is saying, should be what our lives look like. He says in uh, verses 14 and 15, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, 
For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So to think that Jesus calls you friend, um, just to sort of pal around and be buddy-buddy, get some beers together, like that kind of a friendship, is it's, it's to have a conception of friendship that's too much shaped by this world. Jesus is calling you to open your life to him entirely. In response to God having opened his life entirely to you, which he has done. He's held nothing back. He's opened his life up to you. He's become vulnerable to you, and now you know him, and he's calling you to reciprocate that, in a sense, to live, live in a way that's commensurate with what God has done, opening up your life to him and being vulnerable to him. He's talking about divine intimacy that changes everything about our life, about our relationships, not just with God, but with each other. <clears throat> think of a a short list of the most important people you can think of in the Old Testament. Let's say you could count them on one hand. Five people, right? Who would they be? Five people from the Old Testament who are just sort of big key pillar figures of the Old Testament. You'd think of people like Adam and Noah, Abraham, and Moses, and David. Pretty big people in the Old Testament. Uh, only two of them ever were called friends by God. Only two. That's Abraham and Moses. And the point is made, it's called attention to, for the sake of effect, they're not called God's friends because they were great. Because they were so faithful. Because they were so obedient and good and loving. Because they responded to God perfectly in every situation. They were called friends of God because God took the initiative. He came to them. He sought them. He found them. And he spoke with them. He spoke with them. Their friendships were characterized by communication. We heard about that in the Old Testament reading where God is speaking face-to-face with Moses. They heard directly from God. These two guys, right? Uh, Two guys who were called God's friends. They heard directly from God. They spoke with God even face-to-face. Two people. Two people out of the whole history of the world that's recorded in the Old Testament in such a privileged relationship with God that they were called his friends, too. And now every single disciple of Jesus Christ is called God's friend. Every Christian is given actually a greater privilege of knowing God than either Abraham or Moses. They saw him face to face. That's something that we will have one day. We don't have it right now. But in terms of communication and God revealing himself, we're far more privileged than Abraham or Moses to know God better. And he's called all of us his friends. Jesus says this uh, to his disciples in Matthew 13. He said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It's not because you're so awesome, right? It's not because you're greater than Abraham or Moses. Probably not. Probably not greater than them. It's because the Son of God came into the world to reveal God to us, to all of us, in ways that far surpass how God revealed himself to Abraham or Moses. Jesus isn't saying that when he came into the world, uh, you know, he kept his friends informed of everything going on with him. He updated his Facebook to let everybody know what he had for breakfast each morning so that we all stay really connected moment by moment, not miss a moment. 
And he isn't saying that he came to unlock all the secrets and mysteries of the universe for us so we have no more questions. He's saying that his father's will, his father's character, his father's love has been clearly communicated to us for our salvation, for our trust, for our response. Through his own teachings, through the events of his own life, Jesus has said everything the father wanted him to say about what it means to have a relationship with this God, how to have a relationship, how to be saved into a relationship with this God. In Jesus, we have God made known to us for intimate relationship in a way that revolutionizes our understanding of him and of his ways. So John Calvin said, By not sparing his own well-beloved son, God testified how much he cares for our salvation. Maybe that just seems super simple, super basic. But it's saying a lot considering whom Jesus is talking to. That God would care for our salvation? That he would give his own son for that? God cares that anti-God people are saved? Sinners? God cares to call them his friends? God cares to sacrifice in order to love those who hated him? When you see that clearly in Jesus' life and you hear it in his message, it changes how we relate to him and it changes how we relate to each other. We obey him. He's saying, you're my friends if you obey me. We obey him, not blindly, not slavishly, not compelled by fear. What happens if we don't obey him? Well, you better do it. But uh, as Leslie Newbigin said, we obey with the, the eager, intelligent obedience of those whose master is also the one who has made them his friends. So <clears throat> the primary expression of this obedience, his great commandment to us, is to love each other the same way he loved us. The same way he loved us. To befriend people who hurt us to befriend people who oppose us, brothers and sisters in the church he's talking about, to give ourselves to pursuing them with reconciling love, to give our time and our energy and our resources, even to give our lives for the sake of loving people who don't deserve to be called friends, to share the love of Christ with them. That's that's life in the church. There's no other version of life in the church possible in this world. Not really. Just as Jesus didn't have a pool of true soulmates to draw his friends from. You don't have a a pool of true soulmates in the church that you can hang out with. You've got no one else in this church to love than people who are just not good at having a relationship with you. Now maybe... At this point, you see the surprise of his love. How different it is from the world's version of love. It might be normal to lay down, to expect everybody would want to lay down their lives for family members or for your children. You give them the best that you can give them. You lay down your life for them or for your BFF. But this, this love is not like that. This love is not like that. This love is a choice to give everything to those who have broken your trust and hurt you and violated your relationship. 
in order to heal and restore so that you can live together. <clears throat> Which means uh, that you really need to love them not just with your own love, not just with your own resources, but with the very same love that Jesus has loved you with. He says in verse 16, this is what it looks like. You didn't choose me. I chose you. <clears throat> he befriended us. He took the initiative. He gives us absolute security in our relationship with him. He gives us absolute confidence in our relationship with himself because that relationship doesn't depend at all on how good we are. It doesn't depend at all on how we, how we treat him. We crucified him, and he's still offering this relationship to us. It always depends on how good he is to us, which is to say absolutely, entirely, perfectly, perfectly good to us. He defines the relationship. He's the one who's chosen us. He's the one who's loved us. He establishes the relationship. He comes into the world on a mission to love people who hated him, to love anti-God people. And his initiative and his love means that he conscripts anti-God people, he conscripts sinners into the same mission that he has, changing them so that they'll love like he does. With the definition of love we've received from him, now we take the initiative in our relationship with each other. There is some small degree in which we are free to do that. That actually is a possibility for us. I don't base my relationship with you on whether you've been a good friend to me or not. I base my relationship with you on how Jesus has loved me, which is to say unconditionally. It sounds insane, but that's the gospel. That's what Jesus is talking about. My commitment to you does not waver depending on how you treat me. My commitment to you reflects Jesus' commitment to us. That's the fruit of a relationship with him that he wants us to bear out in our relationship with each other. That's the kind of fruit that will last forever, he says. Rodney Whitaker said that the primary expression of this fruit that Jesus speaks of here is the love within the Christian community. The fruit that remains is thus the, the love that flows from and bears witness to life in union with God. This love has come into the world in Jesus and now is to remain in the world in the community of his disciples. So God has called us friends. He's laid down his life for us. And now you take a look around the church, every single person you see, your life belongs to them. That's what he says. And when you live that way, in whatever small ways we, we possibly can, being as faithful as we can to Jesus, <clears throat> responding to Jesus in our relationship with each other in the church, that's the kind of fruit that glorifies the God who is love. It glorifies the God who is the God of union and reconciliation. So the way to bear this fruit, Jesus says, is through prayer, through prayer in Jesus' name, coming to God with Jesus as the one who reveals God to us. Now we know what God we're talking to and how to approach him because Jesus is our mediator. He's, he's reestablished this relationship between us and God, and now we come to God with a desire to live more and more like Jesus, 
because his life really is beautiful. His sacrifice is divine. It's true. And we want to be more like that. We want that, that love to characterize us. So we ask from God what Jesus wants for us, even if we don't really understand what that means. We don't really understand what we're asking for, what it'll take to love like Jesus loves. These things I command you, though, Jesus says, so that you'll love one another. Everything he's saying sort of amounts to that. If you ask the Father in Jesus' name, like Jesus says, you will be able to love one another. With a love like his, that's amazing. That's the change that he wants to make in your life, and he came to to love us and give us the privilege of loving like he loves, so you should ask him for that privilege through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the prayer that he enthusiastically answers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these things um, are very foreign to us to, to even understand Jesus' love for us, let alone to uh, turn around and extend that same love to each other. To conceive of these things is too much of us, uh, let alone to, to act out this life of love and self-gift and sacrifice, to be able to lay down our lives for the sake of our friends, friends who don't deserve to be called friends. Um, but we pray that Jesus would be exalted among us in our hearts, that his love would be the greatest thing in our lives, that um, to love like he loves would be the greatest prayer of our lives, so that this community would really bear the fruit that you are at work to produce in us, that we would bear a fruit that glorifies your name, Father, We would bear fruit that lasts forever because these relationships in Jesus Christ will last forever. So we pray that you'd help us to to see Jesus and to be changed into his likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.